Welcome to Calvary Chapel Sebastian Podcast. We hope that you're blessed by this message. All right, you guys are a friendly bunch. I like that. It's nice to be able to say hello to people. And um, So welcome everybody here tonight and everyone joining us on our podcast channel. Um, we're glad you're here. I'm going to give you a little recap of last week. Um, last week we learned about the ten plagues and also the ten waves of grace and that God is a God of second, third, fourth, and how many chances, right? And we're thankful for that, aren't we? We are thankful for that. So I just want to talk a little bit about that. You know, we're looking at Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's probably one of the worst characters in the Bible so far, isn't he? He's terrible. And his kingdom epitomizes the rebellion against God, human rebellion against God. And those first five plagues, um, they were against the gods of Egypt. And it says here that Pharaoh's heart, his heart hardened or his heart grew hard. That was because of his will. He did that on his own. Now, God knew that he was going to resist this, and he knew he was going to do that, but God gave him many chances. That's what Pastor David talked about last week. He's the God of second and third and fourth chances. God gave the Pharaoh many chances to change, did he not? He did. Many chances, just like with us. He gives us many chances. But Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return, and his own advisors think he's nuts, right? I mean, this guy is nuts. He's crazy. He's nuttier than what the the peanut farms down in Georgia, right? I mean, he's nutty. He is crazy. So his own people are looking at him. Now, at this point, God takes over and he bends Pharaoh for his own redemptive purposes. He lures him into his own destruction with this final plague as God will save his people. Now Passover, God will save his people. And God turns the tables on Pharaoh who killed the Israelites' firstborns. And God will now kill the Egyptian firstborn with this final plague but God unlike Pharaoh provided a means for escape through the blood of the lamb the night before they had they'd left they sacrificed a young spotless lamb they painted the blood on the doorpost of their house and when this divine plague came over them over Egypt the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were spared and their sons were spared as well. Now Pharaoh's pride in his rebellion, he lost his own son. And he's compelled to let the Israelites free. So ever since the Israelites reenacted that night, ever since then they've been doing this. They do it to remember and celebrate God's mercy and his justice. Let me ask you a question. How do you guys remember stuff? I mean, the older I get, I seem to forget things. I don't know, does anybody else have that issue? Yeah. So we tend to forget things, don't we? So sometimes you tie a string around your finger, right? And you're like, oh, then you can't remember why the string's there. Right? But we do that. But one of the things that I do... um, when it comes to remembering, I try to pass on things 
to my grandkids and my kids. And my grandson is Reef. He's 10 years old. And I've been telling him about God and his goodness, his faithfulness, and the many blessings that he's given all of us over the years. Reflecting on the simple goodness of a roof over our head, the nice AC in the summer, right? That's nice, right? And the time that we just spend together. And I bought him a Bible, and now we're able to talk about different things in the Bible. And we talk about Psalms 23, about our Good Shepherd, who supplies all of our needs. And the reason I do this is that I hope that when the good Lord calls me home, that he will remember with fondness the first time that he heard about God's goodness and his faithfulness, the shepherding goodness of our God. And tonight, the title of this teaching is God's Goodness and Guidance. Because that's what we're going to hear about. You know, this young emerging Hebrew nation will learn about God and his goodness. Who's their faithful shepherd? Who will faithfully provide for his people? Not in a nice, cool home with plenty of food. But instead, they will learn about God's provision and protection facing a watery wall with an army advancing at their backs in a very desperate place in the heat of the desert. They will discover that God was with them when they cried out in pain and suffering and that God will make them aware of his presence. And God will make us aware of his presence as well. They learned their hard knocks just like we do, right? The school of hard knocks. And they will learn, just like we have, that God does provide. He would be their good shepherd, and he would provide all their needs. Now in chapter 13, if you're there, this trip would have taken about 10 days as the crow flies. They could have gone really a short path, but they didn't. But God would have this journey take a little bit longer would take about a year, stopping at several campsites along the way, learning several lessons along the way as well. Why would God do this? Why does God take them on a detour? Why does God take us on a journey and detour us at times? Because he does, doesn't he? I have a picture of a map up there, and this is, they could have went straight across Boom, could have been there, been easy. But I believe that it's because there was one thing. God got his people out of Egypt, but it was another thing to get Egypt out of his people. Egypt was a picture of the world. When we got saved, our Lord took us out of the world, and then he took the world out of us. It took one night to take Israel out of Egypt, but 40 years to take Egypt out of Israel. God is not only preparing them for here and now, but he's preparing them for heaven. And he's preparing us for heaven as well, right here and now. 
Because if we're not clear what we're doing here, and we're constantly confused and depressed, and we keep on asking ourselves, what is this all about? What's going on right now? And when we try to figure it out on our own, we'll get discouraged and defeated. But God gives us hope and guidance. That he gives us that here in this life so we're prepared for heaven. And remember, church, heaven is not the prize. Jesus is the prize. It's not about getting to heaven. It's about being in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the prize. If you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to take notes. Write this down. God's guidance, will for, God's goodness will provide guidance for all of our needs. God's goodness will provide all the guidance that we need. Now, as we look at this after stopping at Sukkoth, the tent town, that's called a tent town, um, this illustration with tents, and it shows that this is not our home. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says this, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. Because this is not our home, is it? This is not our home. We're pilgrims passing through. So now these pilgrims are passing through now as they go on, and they packed up their stuff. But before they left, God wanted to tell them something. And our Lord gives Moses specific instructions about two very important things which he wanted to pass along to all the Hebrew people. So if you have your Bibles, you should be in, he, in uh, Exodus 13, 13.1, and it says this. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites, belongs to me, whether human or an animal. Some of, the, some of the versions say dedicate or sanctify, but they belong to God. It's clear that these instructions that the first sons of the Hebrew families were be to dedicated to God. They're gods. The idea was that the firstborn was to be set apart for God, whether it's man or beast. The firstborn belonged to God. There are three reasons for this, and the first is found in Exodus 4.22, and it says this in Exodus 4.22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. That's the first reason, because Israel is God's firstborn. And this will honor that fact, and he wants them to celebrate that. The second because the firstborn was thought to be the best. And the best was always given to God. Do we always give our best to God? Just something to think about. But we should always give God our best. Always. And finally, as a reminder to all the generations of when God redeemed Israel, his firstborn from Egypt. Egypt 
or Israel was saved through the destruction of Egypt's firstborn, and now they're required to dedicate their own firstborn as a constant reminder. It's a remembrance of their deliverance by God. God is effectively saying, this is to help you so you remember. And I'm commanding that you dedicate that to me. Remember the Passover, the Exodus. When you remember this, this will strengthen your faith. This will help us grow in our faith. And then it also said, the firstborn of all domestic animals. And this would serve as a constant reminder to all of them. And we dedicate our children now, don't we? We dedicate our children to God. Then, in verse 3, it says this. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Avid, you are leaving. And I looked up that month of Avid, and it's kind of funny, but you know they Avid kind of means green, okay? They had a word that said it means green. So you're looking at these, this month is probably... March or April is what they say. Anybody see anything green in those months anywhere? There is something green in March, isn't there? There is. So I thought that was interesting that that, that was what that was. So just a little side note <laughs> on that. But then in verse 5 it says, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, the Hizvatites and the Jebusites, and there's probably some mosquito bites and some termites in there as well. All the bites, I think, are represented in this. Um, the land swore to your ancestors to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. You are to observe this ceremony in the, this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during the seven days, Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. This is that second reminder. The second reminder to remember for them to follow faithfully this feast of the unleavened bread. This feast marked the Hebrews as unique people. Remember earlier on, I had talked about we were God's peculiar people, right? We're peculiar people, and peculiar means unique. We're unique people as Christ followers, and they were unique people. But they rushed out of Egypt so quick that they only took unleavened bread. That was bread without yeast. And this would commemorate the moment when the Egyptians urged them did they not urge them to go, get out of here. Look what you, what you brought upon us, leave. So they left in a hurry, and this started their exodus from their slavery. And it was not only just to remember that they were God's firstborn, but they also remembered the day that God delivered them. Do you remember the day that God delivered you? 
good thing to have in our minds, isn't it? The goodness of God when he delivered us from this. You know, to celebrate the Passover annually in order so that their children would understand what God did, you know, for his people bringing them out of Egypt. You know, Jesus established the Lord's Supper after he led the disciples in celebrating Passover. He is the fulfillment of the Passover as the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. No matter what our circumstances may be, we can trust God that he will bring us out and take us through whatever we're going through. Amen? And he will. And each time we share communion, we look back and remember his death and look ahead to anticipate his coming again. And when he returns, what a wonderful exodus will take place at that time. Amen. In verse 8, it says this. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observation will be like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand, so you must keep the ordinance at the appointed time of year. Now this is an interesting passage, um, and what I liked about it is, is God wanted the, the deliverance from Egypt to be constantly on their hands and before their eyes. He wanted them to constantly remember this. Well, I have a picture up here, and it's called, they're called phylacteries. Hopefully I said that right, if you can see that. The Jewish people use these along with a couple other passages to institute the practice of wearing phylacteries which are small boxes holding parchments of, with scripture on them held to their foreheads and their hands with leather strips. You see that? They would put those on. You know, I'll tell you a real quick story. When I went to, eat, went to Israel, it was early in the morning when we got there. And I tell you what, they scared me so bad because we're flying and all of a sudden, I don't know if it was probably morning or we hit Israeli airspace. I'm not sure what it was. But all these guys got up and they started taking stuff out of their bags. I'm like, what's going on? You know, wh what's happening here? And they started wrapping these things around and putting them on their heads. I'm like, what is going on here? I, I was ignorant to it. I didn't know what it was. I do know now, but then I was like, what is happening? What are we doing? We're in a plane. We can't get away. <laughs> but everything was good. So, but later on, Jesus condemns the abuse of wearing these, these phylacteries among the Pharisees. They made these boxes so large and so obscene that it was just something that was making them look super spiritual. You guys ever, do you guys know super spiritual people? I do. Super spiritual. So they're looking super spiritual. 
And God says, or Jesus says, no to that. In Matthew 23, 5, it says this. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses, and inside they wear robes with extra-long tassels. It was all for show. Everything they did was for show. And in the end times, in Revelation, it's going to talk about that as well. A time of show when the Antichrist will either put a mark on your head or a forearm. But the Lord's law should be on our mouth and it should be on our lips. But the interesting thing about this is it shows that God did not command these literal boxes to be placed on them because if he did, they'd have to have one in their mouth, right? They'd have to have one of these boxes in their mouth. They wouldn't be able to do that. And that's not how it should be. But Psalms 119.9 says this, By living according to the word, I seek with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. That's where we keep God's word. We keep it in our hearts. We don't wear it around on boxes. We don't need to do that. We keep it in our hearts. We don't need to be marked with anything to show that we're Christ followers, do we? But if there's one thing that we can be marked by that shows that we are Christ followers, it can be found in John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. And it says this, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How are we marked? How are we known by? Christ followers are known by our love for one another. It's how we love each other. That's how we're known. Not by wearing a box on our head. Although it would probably be pretty cool, but it's... It's really not. Okay, verse 11. Verse 11 says, After the Lord brings you into the land of Canaanite and gives, you, gives to you, as he promised, an oath to you on your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among the sons. Wow. That's something, isn't it? Anybody want to break a donkey's neck? Sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? But... This was done, this was supposed to be done after they got to the promised land. After they got there. It was forbidden for people to derive any benefits from donkeys unless it was redeemed. Got any Rolling Stones fans out here? See, I know this. I know Wednesday nights is a good crowd for that. But the donkey was considered the beast of burden. They were considered a beast of burden, and they made human survival possible 
but it had to be redeemed by the blood of the lamb. The only way a donkey could live is if a lamb was slain for it. And I like this because I think that the analogy is really good here. Because I think the analogy speaks of the lamb as being who? Jesus. So guess who we are? In some versions, it calls it something else too, doesn't it? Think about that one for a minute because that's, that's kind of who we are. But the donkey is mentioned 25 times in the Old Testament. In Genesis, when Abraham took Isaac up to Mount Moron, the donkey was saddled. It was tied up, and it lost its liberty. Later in that same chapter, the donkey was tied up while they went up the mountain to worship. So the donkey was not able to worship because he was tied up. And then in 1 Samuel 9, we see Saul trying to locate his father's donkey that would wandered away and was lost. And then in Jeremiah 22, it speaks of a donkey left dead and tossed outside of the city gates. These references to donkeys tied up, lost, wandering, dead, tossed away, could they be speaking of us? It's not very flattering, is it? But here's the good part. Jesus, a week before he went to the cross, in Matthew 21, it says this, Jesus sent two of them, disciples, on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them. And he will immediately let you take them. Jesus rode this lonely donkey into the city. Can you imagine how that donkey felt? How glorious that was for that donkey? And we wonder, if we're the donkey in this, how can God use us? How can God use us? Jesus chose the donkey. While others chose wild stallions, the Romans had these amazing white horses. But Jesus said, I'll use donkeys. Jesus wants to use us, each and every one of us, as a means to get into our workplaces, our communities, and our homes. And he has chosen each one of us to do that. He's chosen us as that means to get there. Now, you might say, Craig, it sounds a little foolish to me. Does it? Well, in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, it says this. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. The Lamb of God died for each and every one of us so that we could be redeemed. We would be untied, released 
from our guilt and our sin. He redeemed us and he forgave us of our sins. And he will use us for his glory. And you know what I call that? I call that amazing grace. That's amazing grace. And then in verse 14, it says this. In the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And this is looking forward to the day when Jesus would buy us back by paying the price on the cross for all of our sins. And then in verse 15, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us, let us go, the Lord killed the firstborns of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeemed each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. God claimed all of them. It was by his mighty hand. And he's chosen each and every one of us as well. The law is dedicating these firstborn. It was only to take effect when they became into the promised land. The practice of dedicating the firstborn to God would be a reminder through this ritual of God's great work and his strong power for Israel. And then in verse 17, God's going to lead them on a different route. He's going to show them a different path. So in verse 17, it says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was the shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. The, out of, for battle. So I have that map up there again, and it shows this route that they took. This was the coastal route. It was, you know, this, this is the way they went. They could have went straight across, but he was taking them a different route. You know, God knew what was going on. God knew that there was outposts, military outposts, and he said if there was war, these people were not ready. They weren't ready to face it, and they might change their minds. So he led them a different route. The other route had good, easy roads, the shortest distance. It was a trade route that had plenty of food and water that could be bought for the journey, the easy way. How many of us like easy? You guys like easy? I like easy, right? Everybody likes easy. Sometimes we're tempted to take the easy way. But the easy way is not always the best way for us. There are dangers in the easy way when we take shortcuts in life. And we may not see them. But God anticipated the dangers that they could not see. He knew them. 
And in the same way, God will never allow us to face anything that we are not able to bear. He knows what we can handle. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says this, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow temptations to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. Now, it doesn't say that you're not going to, but he says he will never give you more than you can handle. Because sometimes I think we get that a little bit messed up, don't we? Oh, I thought God wouldn't do that. And he says he won't give you more than you can handle. Sometimes we don't feel like we can handle it, but we can. But if you're taking notes, please write this down. God knows our weakness and sees the things that we do not see. He knows what's best for us. Trust the guidance of God. That's a key for us. Trust the guidance for God. Where he guides us, he will provide for us. Trust in that guidance. The route may seem longer than necessary. The direction may not make sense. But he knows the way we should go. And he'll lead us. He'll lead us for one, only one reason. If we listen and obey. We have to listen to the Word of God, and then we have to obey Him. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Sebastian podcast channel. If this message impacted your life, we encourage you to share it with a friend. We're located at 1251 Sebastian Boulevard, just northeast of Intersection 90th Avenue and State Road 512 in Sebastian, Florida. Our service times are Saturday evening at 6 p.m., Sunday morning at 10.45 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m.